That was a Duke Ellington cut. If you're interested in checking it out, it's called Perdido. It's, uh, if, you, if you just go to YouTube and put in call and response and search, that's one of the first videos that you'll find. And call and response, very interesting uh, musical device. And it's something that is used across genres musically. It's certainly used, they showed you there how two different instruments can speak to each other where one musician says something through the piano, and then there is a a response that happens from the drum. It's it's subtle. You might not have heard it if we had just like played the the Duke Ellington track for you at full speed, but when they slow it down, you hear that subtlety. Sometimes it's it's a little bit more conspicuous. For instance, those of you who might be uh, classic rock fans or perhaps a bit more uh, advanced in your whatever maturity, old in life. Um, You might have known this band called The Who, who had a song called My Generation. And through the song My Generation, there is this refrain that we're talking about my generation from a long time ago. Oh, that second part was an ad lib. That's not really in the song. But there's a call and response that happens as they talk about what's going on with their generation. Some of you folks who are into the, the bluegrass may have heard a song called The Dueling Banjos, where two banjos have a very twangy conversation. There are people a little bit more, you know, toward our genre and, and, and this particular generation, just like really great deep musicians. For instance, Carly Rae Jepsen, she has this song called Call Me Maybe, where throughout the chorus, you have synth and strings having a conversation with this woman's voice. The genre where you see this uh, predominantly in settings where there are a lot of people would be gospel music. Y'all ever seen uh, Sister Act and you remember that scene where they uh, do the song, Oh, Happy Day. And the Whoopi Goldberg character has to teach this kid pretty much on the spot, get him out of his comfort zone so that he can lead the congregation in the singing of Oh, Happy Day. And, and when she does this to get him out of his comfort zone, she models for him what she expects to hear from his voice. And so she riffs it off and then they repeat and she riffs it off and they repeat. And it gets to a place then where this student is able to bring the call and people in the congregation are able to to bring the response. I read a really interesting article this week that this dude, Nathan Keegan, uh, published in the Boston College Undergraduate Research Journal. And in this article, he talked about call and response as it relates to hip-hop tracks when you are up in the club. And what he said was this, if it is truly a call and response, then it must also be a conversation. While we understand that the call is made by the artist, who in this group that responds in a choral fashion throughout much of modern hip-hop with systematic rhythmic haze and O's, breaths and pants, is it the producer, the artist posse, festive party-goers, the audience, or an artistic combination of all of these? And what is the conversational import of this exchange? Using Virgil Moorfield's The Producer as a Composer, Kevin Hawthorne's The Chorus as Rhetorical Audience, and Adam Kim's Rap Music and the Poetics of Identity, we posit the call and response as a multi-leveled conversation that at once includes artist, posse, producer, and audience. There's something very powerful musically about what happens when the music is formatted as a call, and then we hear a response, a response that is catchy, 
a response that sticks in our head, a response that sticks in our heart, a response that sometimes we are compelled to join into as a participant in the musical conversation that is happening. This is something that's been going on for a long time, for centuries, for, for generations, across continents. It's very prevalent in South America, uh, in, in Africa, in some of the uh, aboriginal contexts in, in Australia. It's even present in, in some places in the Bible. When you look through the Psalms, this worship book, this hymnal for the people of Israel, there are times where the psalmist will say something and you can imagine the congregation either in their heart or out loud responding, such as the very famous psalm that goes line after line where every other line evokes the response, your steadfast love endures forever. And that's not monotony and that's not just driving something into people's heads It's meant to help people engage and to ask, okay, God, what is it that you would have me do? It's the question for us today. What is it that God would have us do? In Isaiah chapter one, what was it that God was wanting the Israelites to do? What was it that they weren't doing? Last week, we talked in general terms about what the call is on our lives. We spoke specifically about the character of God and the work of God. On Sunday, we, we dealt with the first nine, ten verses of Isaiah chapter 1. We talked about the importance of our life to, 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 to be introspective, to reflect, and how God might sometimes be calling us to repent of things that we are or are not doing that are outside of the will of God, to get in line with what God wants for our lives. Today, we are going to get in with some specificity to responses that God desires, even that God requires, if we want to use language that strong, from his worshiping people. And so as we study the call today, we consider the response for Israel and the response for our lives. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the word of the Lord. We'll say thanks be to God for that. But man, it's like one of those deals where you walk into the room and you could smell the anger. You walk into the room and you could hear the heartbeat. And you know that someone's about to tear into you. And from the moment that you hear their voice, it is shrill and it is passionate. And you just kind of look at them and you're like, oh, yeah, 
he mad. And you know that you are going to have to take, after the first stanza, a bit of a tongue lashing. That it makes no sense for you at this point in time to try to argue or acquit yourself. You know that you have some listening to do before you have the chance to do some speaking. That's kind of the, the, the feeling I get when we start in here, when God addresses his people as Sodom and Gomorrah, places that have been destroyed. When we look at this text, we see a couple of things in particular that have God angry, that have God very angry, that have God's eyes bloodshot, that have that, that little vein in the, in the side of God's forehead just pulsing away. We see one thing straight off the bat that, that, that has God, when he speaks, casting moisture out into the air and perhaps even onto our faces. The first thing that we see that makes God so angry is that the people are not worshiping in a way that glorifies God. You see, God had set aside ways for his people to worship. God had set aside specific days, specific times, specific festivals, specific celebrations. And undergirding all of these things was this idea that these were celebrations of God's character and the work that God had done. There are a lot of terms in here that, that we understand the words. It doesn't seem like they always go together. Speaking of, of fat that's being burned up and, and, and aromas and, and offerings that are made up in vain, incense that is abominable. Let's talk about some of these feasts and some of these holidays that God had set forth. The one that we know about first off is, is the Sabbath day. When we crack open our Bibles and we read about how God created the earth, we know that God created on six day in six days. And on that seventh day, what did God do? God rested. And so God says, look, if you are going to be the people who are made in my image, then you're going to work for six days. But on the seventh day, you're going to do what I did. You are going to rest. And when you rest, you're going to pray. And when you rest, you're going to look back upon your week. When you rest, you're going to anticipate about, about what's going on. When you rest, you're going to spend some time with loved ones. You're even going to have a, a matter of minutes before your actual rest time. That is a time where you prepare to rest. And when you come out of rest, you are going to break rest together as you break bread. The feast of the Sabbath. In Numbers 28, 11, we see another uh, feast that God has, the new moon offering that's referred to here in this text. And the new moon offering is something that would happen once a month where the people of Israel, where God's people were supposed to present to the Lord a burnt offering of two young bulls, one ram and seven male lambs, a year old, all without defect. If we are people of the word, if we are people who are Christ followers, that should kind of make sense to us. That should resonate to us in terms of what God was talking about, building up to preparing his people and his world for. Each of these animal sacrifices was to be accompanied by a grain offering and a drink offering. This new moon festival marked the consecration to God of each new month of the year. The people made sacrifices. They blew trumpets over the sacrifices. They stopped working. They stopped selling. They stopped their family and social feasts, and they paid attention to God to recalibrate themselves every time the moon turned over so that they could remember who created them. They could remember their own mortality. They could remember the holiness and the greatness of God, and they could think about how do we be about this thing in a more effective and more authentic way. 
You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we know as Passover that celebrates the Exodus where a sacrificial lamb was slaughtered. We look at what God did is he asked people to set aside and have a specific meal so they can remember the deliverance that God had provided for them. There was a feast of weeks, a call to holiness, a declaration of holiness that reminded the people of their charge at the base of Mount Sinai to be a kingdom of priests and holy nations that we see in Exodus 19. And they were to offer grain offerings at this time. And there was a feast of booths. This is the one that sounds kind of fun. It's a big old festival. It's like Godstock whatever, B.C. The Feast of Booths prescribed in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16, a week-long feast that begins on the 15th day of a specific month, roughly about this time, late September, mid-October on our modern calendar. The feast begins with a psalm reading, willow branches to be used as a symbol of rejoicing before the Lord. Israel would camp out in tents and booths for an entire week. The whole country just out there kicking it, wilding out out in the, in the, in the wilderness, hanging out. And it's part, the participation of this extends not only to male Israelite citizens, but also to priests, orphans, widows, immigrants, and the male and female children of slaves. The purpose of this feast was to remember the giving of the law and to renew the covenant made between Israel and the Lord. Seven days long, with the eighth day being a call to holiness. It mattered to God the symbolism that people brought into worship. It mattered to God that they worshiped. It mattered to God how they worshiped. It mattered to God what their hearts were. And an interesting thing that we see here in this text is it looks like the people of Israel were actually doing these things. They were actually bringing the incense. They were actually praying, speaking out to God. They were actually burning their fattened calves and their slaughtered rams. They were actually going out and doing the camping trips. They were taking their Sabbath. They were spending time together, but something was wrong. Something was corrupted in their hearts because they were not coming to terms during these times of celebrations and festivals and time of reflection with their sin. And so without that recognition, there was no repentance. They were living in their evil ways. And what God was saying is, is, look, what you're doing right now is you are going through the motions. You keep doing it, but you are wasting all of these things, all of these resources, because your heart is not right. You are jumping through hoops. Let me put this in a way you might be able to understand. God didn't come to the people and say, look, you're skipping class and having someone hand in homework that you didn't do. No, God said, you're coming to class, but you're sleeping on your book, drooling all over the page, snoring, interrupting the professor. When you wake up, you get on your phone and you check your tweets. You're here in body, but you are not here in spirit. And as such, you aren't learning anything through the experience. You're just here wasting your own time. And you're wasting everybody's time. The reaction that we see from God is he mad. He mad. And there's a call to worship. The response that the people of Israel should have had and that we should have when we come into worship should be a response to the character and to the work of God. A response where we consider our humanity. We consider our sin, but we also consider what it means to be made in God's image. 
where we consider the word of the Lord, the law that has been handed down to us, where we consider the provision of the Lord, the things that God has allowed us to do, the spaces that, that God has allowed us to inhabit, the call that God has put on our lives so that when we worship in our spaces, when we worship for a purpose, when we worship not to feel good, but to be transformed, we can leave this place and actually do something. And what was it that the people were not doing? It's pretty specific right here in the word of the Lord. As God talks to the people, he says this beginning in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. And then he pinpoints it. Get your laser pointers out, get your highlighters out, because this is the, 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 the money text right here. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the orphans, kitties. Do justice. Do it. Act it out. Correct oppression. Do justice to the fatherless and plead the orphan's case. And we have a couple of choices here. We could talk about what it means to be people of the book who actually do what the Bible says. And we can go out and do it. Or we can talk about, oh, what does this really mean in this day? I don't know. You know, I think it's probably more important as long as, you know, we're having our quiet times, we're doing okay. I think you're going to have some problems with that argument. The problem that you're going to have with the argument is you're going to have to deal with the sheer volume of times that this explicit command to look after the orphan and the oppressed and the widow and those who have had injustice done against them shows up in Scripture. In Psalm 146, verse 9, we see God being the Lord who protects the strangers, supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. In Proverbs fifteen twenty five, we see that the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. We see stories of widows undergirding narratives with Ruth, the prophet Elijah, and the prophet Elisha. We see Job, Joel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi in our books of prophets addressing this issue that Israel was not trying to end systemic injustice, but was instead sometimes ignoring it and sometimes taking advantage of the oppressed. Luke, Mark, and John all tell narratives of Jesus where people who have been oppressed, specifically women without husbands, are at the center of the story. In 1 Timothy, we are exhorted to honor true widows. And James says this. This is what it says in the book of James. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of the Lord and our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You cannot ignore that. You are going to have to ignore at least 70 texts in this scripture, this thing that we call our book, this thing that we call our commandments, this, this, this thing that the people of Israel was ignoring, this response that they were not embodying. You're going to have to ignore all of that if you feel like you could come into worship and not be changed to go out into the world and to speak wholeness and peace into the lives of the oppressed those who have not been had justice done in their lives, the widow and the orphan. This is something that we struggle with in our backyard. In Kansas foster care, as of a year ago, there were 6,522 children in the system. That was 400 more than there were the year before that. Another 350 in that year had come in. Another 872 had come into the system the year before that. You ask yourself, why does this happen? 
Donna Bowe, the chief executive of the Kansas Children's Service League, sees the escalating numbers as evidence of a building crisis. I should say so. This is a primary indicator that we're not reaching families before tragedies happen, she said. These are families in crisis, and we're not reaching them because the resources for reaching them have been exhausted. Well, shame on us. Because if God was mad at Israel, then I wonder how God feels about those numbers. Here's the thing. She talks about resources having been exhausted. We could have a conversation outside of this space, probably not appropriate in worship spaces, about where those resources come from, how we utilize them, how much we should be utilizing them as government entities. Valid discussion to have. But here's what I know. When I look around churches, when I drive up and down the blocks in towns all across Kansas, I see a lot of churches. I see a lot of pews. I see a lot of chairs. I see people streaming in and out of those buildings every day. And certainly there are people in those churches, people of the book, believers, so-called Christ followers who are doing something about this issue. But I do not believe that as a people of God, we have exhausted our resources in the fight against oppression and in the fight for the widow and on behalf of the orphan. I think that when we look at our bank statements and our credit card statements and our checkbooks, we can find ways in which we have given money to organizations that produce the clothes on our back, that produce the things in our homes where people are taken advantage of in other countries. I think we can look at our tax statements and ask ourselves the question, when I look at my year-end giving, am I giving enough to organizations, yes, even faith-based organizations that are speaking out for the widow and for the orphan and for the oppressed? I think we can look at how we use our house, the people who we have had around our tables to break bread with us and ask us, are these people, these types of people, the people that I've been sitting with, the people that I've been eating with, the people that I've been drinking with, because I know that, that those are the people that Jesus was hanging out with. I think if we look at how we operate vocationally, how we steward our time, we can ask ourselves, what am I doing as a teacher, as a coach, as a business person? What, what, what am I doing as, as the person who, who works in, in food services, wherever it is that we operate vocationally? We can look at how we steward our time and ask ourselves, am I giving something to these populations? Have I really tapped out by my by professional resources and expertise? I don't think our resources as the people of God are tapped out. And so if we're coming to worship and we're not doing what God has called us to do, then what are we even doing? We're ignoring the call and God is playing this song and that song begs for a response that we are not participating in. We operate in spaces of privilege, but we don't bring people along with us in that as God has commanded. I was hanging out with my kids this summer. We spent a lot of time at the pool, but not as much as we could have. Because my kids were supposed to be in three different swimming lesson classes this year. Well, we were like, we ain't hanging out at the pool for three hours. That's just too much, man. I don't need that skin cancer. That's not, that's not on me. And so we got a private teacher. She taught all three of our kids separately in 70 minutes. It was amazing. She called the, the city pool, and um, she's a graduate of this place. And she was like, hey, I'm going to teach the Dash Shield kids. Can we come down during lap swim when it's not very full? And I could just teach the kids, and they won't, they won't bother anybody who might want to lap swim. They're like, sure, come on down. Like, they have a membership, whatever, it's all good. So we go down there, and we'd be down there. There was, like, nobody there, literally nobody there. It was us, 
myself, my wife, their swim teacher, and the lifeguard who didn't have to come out, Jacob Cub Schmidt, that a lot of you know on the football team, he'd come out, hang out, and we'd talk. And when my son got done with his 20-minute lesson, he, uh, he wanted to come over one day and hang out with me and Cub. The thing you have to understand about my son is he is overgrown. He is a seven-year-old first grader who's the tallest kid in his class, but he was super scared of everything in the water. He had to wear goggles and nose plugs, and he would not go off the diving board or down the slide if I wasn't there to catch him at the beginning of the summer. And after a week of lessons, he comes out, me and Cobb are hanging out, we're just kicking in the pool, and uh, my son does, uh, he sees his sister doing cartwheels in the pool, so he does a cartwheel into the pool. And then he goes over and he goes to uh, the, the, the diving board and he jumps off the diving board and he does it again. And, and, and it was very clear to him, he understood that, that his dad and the lifeguard and his mom and the swim teacher would come save him. And so it gave him a confidence to be able to build his skill set. And now you can't get that kid out of the pool. He doesn't need floaties. He doesn't need his, 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 his face stuff to be protected. He could actually get his face wet. It's a summer Christmas miracle, man. I don't know how to explain it to you, except he knows how to explain it to you. And he said, he's like, Dad, you know what? It's pretty lucky because I get to come here um, and, and get all this practice when other people aren't practicing. And so then when, like, when my friends show up to the pool, like I could show them all this stuff and they'll wonder how I did it. I was like, you're pretty lucky, dude. And it's kind of a parable for, for privilege. And it's interesting to me that my seven-year-old could understand that he was being afforded opportunities that not everybody had. And that was helping him to build a capacity to do something that not everybody could do. So my question is this, when we look at our privileges, when we look at our resources, when we look at the things that God has called us to do, what is it that we can do about these things? In our lives, can we be involved in prison ministry, knowing that when men are in prison, the kids that they leave behind are effectively orphaned for the time that their fathers are incarcerated? Could we be about training people in those environments so that when they get out, they could be a voice in their kids' lives so that they have been discipled and that they have been trained? Can we think about what it means for us in this space to always consider, God, how are you transforming me so that when I leave this space, I can better encounter the world for your glory? God, I ain't coming into chapel. I ain't coming into church just simply looking to get all the warm and fuzzies from hearing this this four-minute song. Because what I need is a four-hour praise dance performed every morning till I get shortness of breath as I live my life for you. Knowing that God cares deeply, madly about these things. Knowing that God wants you to steward your time in worship well, but not just so that you can have warm fuzzies, so that you can change the world for his glory. Our resources are not tapped out as the church. Our potential is not tapped out at the church. There is no excuse for the inequalities and the injustices and the pain and the suffering without people reaching out into other people's lives who are different from them, who don't have the same educational opportunities that we have had. We need to be about the business of God. We need to be about the life of God that he has ordained for us. When we think about the call, will we be the ones who will respond in this time and in this place to worship him truly? When we think about the call, will we be the ones who will affect radical change in the world around us as a response? Response to the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, the one who has indeed taken away our 
iniquities and given us the opportunity to live life abundantly. Here's the deal. I have a liturgy for us as these guys come up so that we can sing one more song. And usually I would ask you to stand for the liturgy. I'm not going to ask you to stand for this one. I'm going to ask you to sit because I don't want you to feel pressured to say something that you don't want to say. I don't want you to come into the assembly and feel like you just got to stand there like holding your Bible or whatever, being conspicuous while other people are, are saying this. So I'm going to ask you to join with me in this ending liturgy if you mean it. If you mean it, if you want to mean it. If you want that transformation, if you want people to ask you, all right, what's God inviting you to? What responses do you, do you think that God has for you in your life as you seek to help out the fatherless those who have been treated unjustly and to correct oppression like it says in our book. As before, I will read some text and the response for us today, if we mean it, if we mean it, will be, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be ever in my mouth. Let my soul glory in the Lord. The lowly will hear me and be glad. I will bless the Lord at all times. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us together extol his name. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I will bless the Lord at all times. Look to him that you may be radiant with joy and your face may not blush with shame. When the poor one called out, the Lord heard and from all his distress, he saved him. I will bless the Lord at all times. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears him and delivers them. Taste and see how good the Lord is. Bless the person who takes refuge in him. I will bless the Lord at all times.